Acts 2, verses 41 to 47. About 20 years ago, there was a group of 33 renowned doctors and psychologists, professors, researchers, youth experts, and other experts from places like Harvard Medical School and Columbia and Dartmouth and Yale, and they released a landmark study called Hardwired to Connect. This study was prompted by a crisis, a crisis happening among America's young people, and a crisis which has just gotten worse in the 20 years or so since the study. At that time, the study had this to say. The crisis comes in two parts. The first part is the deteriorating mental health and behavioral health of U.S. children. We're witnessing high and rising rates of depression, anxiety, attention deficit, conduct disorders, thoughts of suicide, and other serious mental, emotional, and behavioral problems among U.S. children and adolescents. The second part of the crisis is how we as a society are thinking about this deterioration. We're using medications and psychotherapies. We're designing more and more special programs for at-risk children. And these approaches are necessary, but they are not enough. Why? Because programs of individual risk assessment and treatment seldom encourage us and can even prevent us from recognizing as a society the broad environmental conditions that are contributing to growing numbers of suffering children. The report goes on to point out that researchers now know that human beings, and especially children, are hardwired to connect. We actually have a built-in neurological need to connect with others in meaningful ways. And the report continues, in large measure, what's causing this crisis of American childhood is a lack of connectedness. We mean two kinds of connectedness, close connections to other people and deep connections to moral and spiritual meaning. Where does this connectedness come from? It comes from groups of people organized around certain purposes. And then this group of secular researchers and experts conclude what can help most to solve the crisis are what they call authoritative communities. Authoritative communities, they explain, are groups of people who are committed to one another over time and who model and pass on at least part of what it means to be a good person and live a good life. <laughs> and then listen to this. Renewing and building them is the key to improving the lives of U.S. children and adolescents. Wow. So let me ask you, in the past 20 years since that landmark study, how much effort and attention has the United States invested in providing our young people with these sorts of communities. Even more, how much effort and attention have U.S. churches invested in being these kinds of communities for our young people? Well, it's not just children, actually, who need this. Listen to some of these findings about adults. These are from a book uh, called Making Room for Life by Randy Frazee. The American Institute of Stress has conducted extensive research on the role of social support in health. The findings are conclusive, incessant, and staggering. For example, careful research was conducted on 232 patients who had undergone cardiac surgery. 
Of these patients, 21 died within six months. And two statistically significant mortality predictors that emerged from these 21 cases were a lack of participation in social or community groups and the absence of strength and comfort from religion. Another example comes from a recent Swedish report that demonstrates that middle-aged men who had recently endured high levels of emotional stress but had little emotional support were three times as likely to die over the next seven years as those with close personal ties. A California study involving 7,000 men and women found that after nine years, those with the fewest social ties were twice as likely to die as those with the strongest ones. The American Institute of Stress also cited a report indicating that social activity can predict cardiac mortality as strongly as elevated cholesterol. And lack of social activity is linked with higher mortality rates for diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and other autoimmune disorders. Finally, another well-documented study shows that social isolation contributes to illness and death as much as smoking. So, if you feel the need to smoke, for goodness, goodness sake, don't do it alone. <coughs> well, not my words, Randy Frazee's words. Um, COVID has made all of these things worse, right? And more challenging. And so we're in the middle of this sermon series on Acts chapter 2. We're looking at the picture of the early community of Jesus followers that's painted for us there. And we're letting it help us answer two questions. First, how do we move forward as a church? After two years of COVID and all that has meant, how should we as a church, or what should we as a church be focusing on? Where should we be heading? And then the second question is, how do we do this? How do we move forward in light of Easter? In light of all that we celebrated, it's been three Sundays ago now. How do we move forward in light of the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was put to death tasted death, experienced death, and then conquered and defeated death and entered into the eternal life, the new life on the other side. How do we move forward in light of the fact that Jesus Christ then ascended to heaven and poured out God's Spirit on all of us, infusing us with that new life, a new reality of God's power, God's love, God's presence with us to change us, to transform us, to empower us, to fill us up, and to make us alive like never before. What does all of that mean for us? And what does it mean for us in May of 2022 as we seek to move forward as a church after two very challenging years, two very isolating years for some of us? Well, as we've been looking for answers in Acts chapter 2, we've seen the early community of Jesus' followers, how they were vital, they were compelling, they were vibrant, they were attractive. And we've been allowing them to give us fresh vision, fresh encouragement, and fresh direction as we seek to move forward together. We've seen that this community of followers of Jesus were devoted to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and ministry, to koinonia, we'll unpack this Greek word this morning, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. 
We also saw why they were so devoted. They had just experienced within the past six weeks the most amazing things together. They had experienced their teacher, their leader, their king and messiah being snatched away from them and tortured to death in the most cruel way. And this had crushed them, crushed their hopes, their hearts, their understanding of who Jesus had been and what following him was all about. But then three days later, against all of their expectations, against everything they even thought was possible, Jesus, they experienced, was alive again. Resurrected, not come back from death to live a while longer, a human life only to die again later, but no, rather gone through death to the eternal life, the new life on the other side. And the resurrected Jesus explained to them that he had defeated death, that he had defeated darkness, and God was installing him as the victorious king of all, and Jesus would include them, his followers, in his victory, in his new life. One way he would do this would be by pouring out his Holy Spirit on all of his followers to fill them with this new life that he was now enjoying, to fill them with joy, to fill them with love, to fill them with power, to fill them with himself. In a word, what Jesus had done and was doing was beginning to bring heaven down to earth. And he was doing it in and for and through his followers. How could they not be devoted after experiencing all that? We also noted how they expressed their devotion, what they were devoted to, not to an institution or a religion or an organization, but to Jesus and to a way of life with a group of people who were following Jesus. Today we're going to focus in on the koinonia part of this, that this group was devoted to. Most English translations translate it fellowship, and I'm really not sure why. (laughs) Because fellowship, at least today, the way we use that word, doesn't even come close to what koinonia means. At least when I think of fellowship, I think of what's going to happen after the service when we all all go up for coffee for 10 minutes or so. Or I think about how we advertise a men's event. There will be food and good teaching and fellowship. You know, time to to talk, to hang out together. But this barely scratches the surface of all that koinonia is. Look how koinonia is described in our passage, beginning in verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That's koinonia. All the believers had everything in common. That word common is the Greek word koinos, closely related to koinonia. Koinonia means sharing. It means close relationship. It means sharing in common, having a common life, even generosity. And it's a key ingredient of the kind of communities that 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 study, Hardwired to Connect, says our young people desperately need if they are going to grow up healthy. So let's talk about this early community of Jesus followers in Acts 2 and what their koinonia, what their common life looked like. One way to sum this up would be 
to look at it in terms of three areas. First, they shared, they held in common a passionate spirituality. Would you agree? Read the book of Acts. <laughs> they were devoted to learning about Jesus and to praying together. They had just experienced, if you go back to Acts 2 earlier, to being baptized by the Holy Spirit. They were full of joy and awe. If you went and hung out with these people, I'm quite sure you would sense their passion for God and the infectiousness of the vibrant spiritual life that they shared. They had a passionate spirituality. Second, this group shared, they had in common, a radical sense of community. They were a radical community. They really believed, they really understood that they were a spiritual family and that they were in this together. So they shared their possessions if one person had a need, others would sell what they had and help that person out. That's radical, right? <laughs> and it wasn't just their possessions. They hung out together. They spent time together. They got to know each other more deeply. They ate together. They were a tight, committed community doing life together. Radical community. And then third, they shared a common purpose. A common missional zeal. Notice how this description in verses 42 to 47 that we're looking at, it's bracketed, it's sandwiched by mission. Verse 41, Peter, one of their leaders, had just shared the good news about Jesus with a large crowd of people, and we read in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow! <laughs> and then again in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How did this happen? How is God adding to their number daily? Well, Luke doesn't elaborate right here, but if you read the rest of the book of Acts, it becomes clear. They are sharing passionately and boldly the story of Jesus and the good news of what Jesus has done. And they are praying for people, and people are being healed, and miracles are taking place. They are active in mission. They're not a holy huddle hiding off in a corner somewhere. No, they are active in reaching out. And so they're growing. And people, new people are having their lives get transformed. Those new people are discovering how amazing Jesus is. And they're bringing that fresh enthusiasm into the community. And it's part of what makes this community so dynamic. So question, how does that compare to most churches today? Well, here's what I'd like to suggest, and here's, how, uh, here's what I'd like to suggest about how we typically today go about doing church. And I think at CBC, we've been trying over the years to be an exception to this, but you can be the judge. And by the way, for those who were at the, the congregational meeting last Sunday, what I'm about to share is in no way a response to that. I actually prepared these thoughts before that meeting. And I've shared this in other places with other church leaders and uh, have been wanting for some time to share it with CBC. And uh, you might see um, why I want to make that clear just in terms of my motivation for sharing this. So first, how do most churches stack up next to the passionate spirituality of the early church? Well, we're all busy, right? And we don't know the Bible really well. And we're not comfortable praying, especially out loud. So what most churches do is they hire a pastor. 
They say, we'll pay a person to study the Bible. We'll pay a person to spend all week listening to God and praying. And then we'll show up on Sunday and we'll receive what they have to give us. Hopefully it'll be informative and hopefully it'll be inspiring and relevant to our lives. If it isn't, we might complain. If it is, we might try to remember a bit of it and maybe try to let it impact our lives a bit. Instead of stirring up within ourselves passionate spirituality, many churches hire a pastor to do it for us. And radical community, well, that sounds a bit radical. It sounds uncomfortable. It sounds like it could get messy. And again, we're busy, so what do we do? Well, second, we start some programs. The great thing about a program is that it has a definite start and end time. It's neat. It's clean. You can fit it into your calendar or not if it doesn't work. And if you do choose to participate, you know exactly what the commitment is. You can anticipate it. You can pull yourself together, drive to church, put your smile on for an hour and a half. And then afterwards, you leave it behind and you go back to your real life. Programs are safe. They're sanitary. They're very different from relationships. Because relationships are messy, right? <laughs> you, you don't always know how they're going to go or uh, when they'll require something of you. And, and you can't fake it as easily in relationships. Relationships tend to bring out who you really are and hopefully what you're really dealing with. Okay, then third, missional zeal. Again, that takes time and energy, and we're not so sure how to share our faith, and we're not too comfortable with people outside the church. So what do we do? Third, we give money to missions. Rather than growing and stretching ourselves so that we can do mission ourselves, we hire someone else to do mission for us. They're the experts. They know how to do that stuff. And we're so glad that they're willing to make those sacrifices and devote their lives to Jesus. And we'll make sure they'll succeed. We'll give them money. We'll pray for them now and then. And so there we have the modern Western church. More or less, right? A bit of a caricature. And the Western church may not have the vitality of the early church, the life, the energy, the power. In fact, truth be told, most of those around us in the world may think we're irrelevant. And that many churches have nothing to offer. Truth be told, all the kids, all those kids in our country who desperately need a real community of people who stand for something moral and spiritual. Those kids who think we're boring, that we're irrelevant, and that nobody really understands what they're going through. Well, that's not who we're trying to be as a church at CBC, right? We're trying to be more like the church we read about in Acts 2 and throughout the New Testament. And part of what it takes, one of the, the key ingredients is that we have to be devoted to koinonia. To viewing ourselves not like the typical Western church or typical Western way of thinking as a collection of individuals who are isolated from one another who happen to bump up against one another for an hour and a quarter on a Sunday morning. But rather, viewing ourselves as a spiritual family who share a common life together. So, if that's who we want to be, 
How do we do this? How can we be devoted to koinonia? Well, it's been part of our vision for these last few years, right? And we've had lots of opportunities to practice it during COVID. Our vision has been to treat one another like family, as well as for each of us to be a missionary and to dig deeper together with God. Let's focus in this morning on the spiritual family part. One way that, that we've sought to do this is by sharing our possessions. Not that we have to be a commune or anything, but when we get to know each other and when we're in each other's lives, there are so many ways and opportunities that come up to share. And so we've shared cars. We've borrowed cars from each other. We have given each other rides to airports and to doctor's appointments. We've lent each other tools, right, guys? I have lent my chainsaw. <laughs> uh, others have offered to me to let me use their drill press. We've passed along baby clothes and children's toys. We've uh, put people up in our spare bedrooms and our houses. We have uh, hired each other to do odd jobs that needed to be done. There are so many ways that we can and that we have shared. And it all builds community. It builds connection. Not to mention that it saves us money along the way. Well, if we had more time, I could give other practical ways that we could build community together. You could give some too. We could even make them all start with the letter P to go along with possessions. One is having common places where we hang out. For the early church, it was their homes, and it was a favorite spot they had in the temple complex called Solomon's Colonnade. The temple was a huge public space. I think it was like 30 football fields. Like that was its size, end to end, side to side. Um, almost like a giant shopping mall with lots of meeting spaces, lots of places to eat, to celebrate together, to hold gatherings. And if you belong to the early church, you always knew that at certain times you could go to a certain place in the temple complex and there you'd find your spiritual family. At least whoever could make it that day, they would be there and you could be with them. They had a common place. How about a common purpose? Again, I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, the early church had a clear, common purpose. Then how about parties and meals? We talked about this last week. Eating together, meals, celebrations. We saw that this was a regular mark of Jesus' life and of the early church's life. And it would be really good for us if more of us would throw parties. Especially those of you who are a lot of fun. We love to come to your parties. And we have so much to celebrate, right? But let's take, for the sake of time, a little more time on one last P, which is play. It's, um, it's sort of related to parties in a way, but the emphasis is a little different. And I think that this is an important one for us to focus on as a church coming out of COVID. When I lived in Washington, D.C. in my 20s, there were a lot of 20-somethings there, attracted by all the staff jobs on Capitol Hill and all the nonprofits that had headquarters there. So there were young people everywhere. And we had a saying about D.C. culture. We work hard and we play hard. <laughs> people would work hard, often for not very much money, because D.C. demands a lot. And people were trying to establish their careers trying to get something on their resume, do what it took. Often they worked late hours on Capitol Hill or downtown, but 
They also played hard. Come the weekend, a bunch of us, we'd, we'd pile into someone's car, we'd road trip to Dewey Beach or to Rehoboth, or someone would fire up the grill at their group home, the group house with their three housemates, invite a bunch of people over. It was usually bring your own meat because we were all poor. And we would play a lot. And so then we'd return to work on Monday refreshed and ready to go at it again. Well, here's been my experience in Westchester County. We work hard. Period. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> we don't play very much. And as a result, a lot of us are uptight. <laughs> We're stressed. We're maybe too serious sometimes. Maybe it's because we're not young and single anymore, many of us. We've got mortgages to pay. We've got kids to raise. We've got kids' activities to ferry our children to. We've got marriages to try to hold together or to patch up. And so we rarely play. And, and to be honest, a lot of us as a result are really not that much fun. And I'll own that. I'm speaking about myself as, as much as anyone else. And so question, what can we do, especially as we come out of COVID, to play more together? Because we need to play to ease the stress and to build relationships and to build koinonia, to have fun together. Don't you think it would have been fun to be part of the, the early church or to hang around Jesus? I think it would have been a lot of fun. Not everything was serious. In fact, remember Jesus was accused of eating too much and drinking too much and being a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because there was so much to celebrate. God had come to earth <laughs> to forgive everyone's sins, to redeem humanity from our captivity to darkness. He was bringing a new age. He was beginning or making a new beginning for us and for the whole world. And those who were following him into it, he was making us a new family together. And part of family is play. My dad used to say to me, all work and no play makes Dick a dull boy. And that was ironic because my dad worked harder than anyone I knew. <laughs> it was my mom's job to make sure we had fun. But my dad was right. Families need to play together and to have fun together. It's part of celebrating all that we have to be grateful for. It's part of connecting and being a family. So what can you do to plan something fun? And maybe invite a few others along. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be complicated. But just being together in a context where we can let our hair down and have a good time is part of what builds us into a spiritual family. It builds our koinonia, and we need it. We need koinonia. Our young people need it. In fact, it's hardwired into our brains by God that to be healthy, we need to be part of this kind of community. Let's pray. God, thank you that through Jesus and in your word, you teach us what it means to live a whole and healthy, and vibrant, and full Christian life. Thank you for the example of the early church, the foot they got off on. It was intense, it was powerful, probably not completely sustainable, but thank you for the way it points us back to key elements of what can help us as we 
seek to move forward. It's been a really hard year for some of us, a really hard couple years. And God, I pray that you would continue to give us vision um, to help us to be devoted to the things we most need to be devoted to. And we realize without your Holy Spirit, um, our efforts alone aren't enough. So we ask for more of your Holy Spirit to breathe your life into us. Amen.